This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And joining me on the phone, it is co-host Alan Niven. It is August 15th, 2019. And I have got from Mountain, guitarist Leslie West on the line. And of course, the connection being August 15th, 1969, Woodstock. We are doing a 50th anniversary show on the 50th anniversary. Yay, look at us. We're, we're, we're so good. Uh, bonjour, Alain. How are you? Bonjour, monsieur. Uh, très bien, merci. Good, good. Um, it's kind of stunning to think that it's been half a century since that event. Um, it certainly doesn't feel or seem that long ago to me. Um, yeah, it's... Time does move quickly. It does move quickly. Now, you must have been a young chap of about 40, 45 at the time. <laughs> I, I would actually, <laughs> I was still at school at the time. Oh. And still at school in England. So being at Woodstock, I think I might be one of the only people on the planet who will never claim to have been at Woodstock because I wasn't. I was at school. Well, you see, and, and for a change, I was in my, what do you call them, nippers? Is that what you call them? I was, I was in oh, the. Oh, you, you'd have been a very, very nipply nipper at that point. Were uh, you even a year old? No, I was not. I was well. In fact, I was twelve days for, away from being a year old. So, but wow, uh, yeah. So, so let's let's just quickly talk about that. Now, Leslie was there. It was their third gig, and he explained, and it's been known previously that he got the gig because his booking agent was Jimi Hendrix's booking agent. Um. Why do you think, and I, and I asked Leslie this, but why do you think Woodstock is being celebrated 50 years later? Why is it culturally significant? You know, I was just at Heavy Montreal and Oceaga, and nobody in 50 years from now is going to be celebrating Heavy Montreal 2019, though they probably should. It's a great festival. But but what was it about? Wood? I mean, at the end of the day, it was a music festival, was it not? Yes, but you've got to... Consider the moment and the times. And I'm sure it's not saying too much that um, I'd be walking over Magdalen Bridge in Oxford and I might have um, a cerebral condition that was highly stimulated by a certain acidic um, factor. And you'd be walking along and you'd be tripping, tripping your brains out and you'd be very conscious that you thought you were the only one who was that high, that aware, that insightful um, in that moment, and that everybody else is walking around being very gray, dull, and not turned on. Um, so when Woodstock came along, part of its significance was, oh my God, there's a whole bunch of us who get high. My God, I never realized there were so many people who were into getting high. And there was that sense of maybe we're on the verge of a brave new world. Uh, maybe we should put LSD into the water system so as the members of parliament can drink it and, and adjust their thinking. Um, but that was part of it. Part of it was the fact that suddenly the, here was something that you could see that brought numbers and a real sense of, wow, maybe this is something cultural and not just a little underground thing that involved me and about six other friends. Um, so that was part of it. The other part of it was there was an absolute
absolute explosion of musical creativity between 1964 and 1969, 1970. And again, Woodstock exhibited that and showed that. Um, I mean, you know, for one thing, um, fast guitar playing, uh, Alvin Lee going home, um, which I think had the drums redone on it in the studio, but I may be wrong there, but you, you probably find out and correct me on that. But I mean, you, you, you've got, you know, speed guitar, you've got the first gig of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, you have Mountain, um, The Who, um, Hendrix. I mean, you know, just, it was definitely an exhibition of the broad range of musical creativity that had burst through in the last five years. And Monterey Pop might have been the first festival that gave notice that there was a broad band of creativity that was about to gain national and international and world prominence. But it was Woodstock that really was the volcano erupting. And there were some actually amazing performances there, of which my absolute favorite is Santana doing Soul Sacrifice. Uh, which is just splendid. And the lovely backstory to that was that Carlos did not think he was going to have to play at that particular moment in the day. And he had gone and got himself high. He took some mushrooms or something and then got collared and said, you're up next. And he tells this lovely story of watching his fretboard weaving backwards and forwards in a serpentine way like a snake and he's trying to play it. But my God, go and listen to the performance of soul sacrifice it's fun it is and 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 by the way night thank you for mentioning santana i did two interviews uh on the same day when i recorded the leslie one the other one was was sheila e and her father actually played with carlos santana for many many years so we're tying it all he together did. he did uh the only thing that was missing from uh woodstock would have been an explosive performance by kiss had they existed, but they didn't. And so the, um, what do you call them, uh, uh, um, hippies, what was missed the name, out. What, 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 what was the name of the first Kiss album? It's all downhill from here. It was called Awesomeness on Vinyl. <laughs> it was terrific. We, we love Awesomeness on Vinyl, and I will be seeing Kiss for the last time after 40 years on August 16th, uh, thus tomorrow, uh, at 4. Wow. Yeah, I saw them August 6, 1979 for the first time, and I'm seeing them August 16th, 2019 for the last time. So almost, almost, right on the dot, 40 years to the day, both times in Montreal. So how's that for, for planning and routing? They, they had a 40-year plan just for me, which was very, very considerate. Very considerate. And, and, and this, is, this is the definitely, maybe, undoubtedly, and of course, Last time tour for, for Kiss. I mean, when did they sure. start doing those? Wasn't that about 93? Listen, uh, Kiss and the Scorpions and Thunder and Ozzy can all be made fun of for faux farewell tours. But let us not forget The Who went on tour, the famous farewell tour in 1982. So until The Who stops touring... Kiss and the Scorpions and Thunder and all the other bands get a pass. Ozzy. So it's it's the who that started this. See? Well, very hard, very hard to gain, say that. And, and uh, 
yes, there is there is there are a number of individuals who have promised that they're going to make this their very last performance, and then realised when they got home that much rather be in a bus heading somewhere to a new gig. <laughs> they get, they get home to the wife and they go, hmm. <laughs> Yeah, four sweaty yeah, guys on a bus. Four sweaty guys on a bus sounds like a good, better plan. But uh, I, I will finish with this. Uh, I'm going to make you choose in terms of impact and cultural significance. Uh, looking at it objectively, which is the greatest moment in rock? Was it Woodstock or was it Live Aid? Are you stumped? Woods, wood, no, I'm not stumped. <laughs> I'm, I'm organizing my thought process. And I would say that Woodstock came with the biggest promise of a wider social consciousness that would be an improvement and an evolution from the social consciousness of the day. Um, Live Aid, on the other hand, although creatively, to me, it represented absolutely nothing much, Live Aid did represent the idea that that consciousness could actually be applied and applied effectively and have good results. Um, an awful lot of money and an awful lot of food was raised and distributed and dispensed. But Woodstock had the promise of a, of a, a consciousness change and Live Aid was a band-aid over, crayon word, was obviously a band-aid over a bad situation. And there was that sense of, well, we've done the gig, we've raised the money, God knows how the accountants are, you know, how credible they are with it all and whether it's all going to be effective and so on and so forth. What happens next week? What happens the week after that? Um, and, you know, just I don't know if you're aware of this, but just in a, in a small and tiny way, uh, myself and an old school friend after the tsunami in Japan tried a different tack on that. Um, my friend had a Japanese wife and called me up and said, you know, what can we do to help? And we discussed the predictable one-off show and all the problems that were inherent in that. And we came up with another idea, which we thought we'd try, which was to put up a permanent um, benefit show by getting people to contribute performances that they had recorded ad hoc and live. And we'd put them up on a, on a site and on the site, we would direct you to the three or four institutions that we had faith in, in terms of them being honest and cost-effective, like the Red Cross, for example. And you could hit a button and go direct there and donate. So we, would, we were not handling any money, and the gig was perpetual. In other words, you could go back and look at that performance by that guy at any time. Um, Chris Buck's trio, TH3, was the very first band to go up. Paul Rogers was second, and Paul was the one who understood exactly what was asked of him. And I said, listen, what I need you to do is just put up your phone, pick up a guitar, and sing me a song and send it to me. And that's exactly what he did. And it was magnificent and wonderful. Um, and Jimmy Jamison did an amazing performance on that, too. I don't know if it's still up there, but it was an interesting concept, a permanent benefit. And And... and Either way, both uh, did contribute something to the the cultural landscape and, and, and to music and, and to forwarding music and to forwarding good feelings and stuff. So uh, anyway, let us uh, let us get over to Le Seul. One thing they shared in common. 
One thing they shared in common. Kiss did not play both. No, it was even better than that. It was a sense of sisterhood and brotherhood. And both did have that. So both great days. But they could have used more pyro and blood spitting. (laughs) But anyway, uh, here is, without further ado, Le Seul Unique, the one, the only, and perhaps even the mighty, Leslie West. We are speaking with the guitarist uh, Leslie West. Uh, Leslie, an absolute uh, pleasure to talk to you. Uh, the music you have provided us over the years is just spectacular. So uh, th- thank you and uh, and welcome. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Yeah. So so listen, we we are recording this on uh, August fourteenth, uh, twenty nineteen, and of course, fifty years ago, almost to the day is when uh, Mountain and yourself played Woodstock. So I, I think that's the, the, the smart uh, place to, to start. Um, uh, my first question is, is why was that festival so culturally significant? Because, you know, just in July, I've been to two festivals and, and I've been to many and they, they aren't Woodstock. What is it about that festival that became so myth- mythical? You know something? I couldn't come up with an answer. Well, it was for me. I believe it was Mountain's third show or second show. And uh, we actually were lucky. Our uh, our agent was Jimi Hendrix's agent. And Jimi was the headliner of the show. And uh, <laughs> I think the agent threw him a, a curve and said, look, you want Jimi Hendrix? You have to take this group that's uh, really unknown, Mountain, and uh, that's how we got on the show. And it, it worked out quite well. How significant was it for the band? Because it was the band's third show. Did it launch the career, or was it just another gig? No, it, it was a big boost for us. I was very upset that we didn't make the album. I think our management wanted more money than they were offering to be in the movie. We were in the, the, the second album on Woodstock too, but uh, yeah, that was the one thing I had. I regret that we weren't in the movie. Uh, I've seen uh, in the album that came out. I think maybe it was the 40th anniversary. I'm not sure, but Woodstock too, they put a couple of songs on video in the album and the CD. So we finally made it. Uh, but it took a long time. It, it really did. And, and uh, anyway, uh, just uh, and before we move on to some of your other career highlights, uh, talk to me a little bit about this 50th anniversary. It, it's sort of hard to believe. And of course, there's this famous picture of this couple in a, in a blanket there. They're still a couple. They're still together. Uh, looking back, what does it sort of hold for you in 2019 in terms of memory and importance? Well, when you introduced me and you said 50-year anniversary, it's hard for me to contemplate. <laughs> 50 years, I mean, that's... I know a lot of people that are dead in normal life after 50 years, but it just seems almost impossible to fathom that we played 50 years ago on the 15th, I think was the night we played. But we were lucky, you know, the first night it was rainy and muddy and we used to call it mudstock. And then sure enough, Saturday was the nicest day of all. 
and uh, it became part of. I can say I was there, you know, because I'm sure. By the way, were you there at the festival? I was not. I was exactly 11 months old. I was born in August of 68, so I, I was not, but... All right. That's but, amazing to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's, I can't believe that. There's millions of people that said they were there, but I think it was only like just maybe shy of a half a million. You know, not millions, but millions, millions, but um, it was the you know, it was new for everybody, especially the acts. I mean, we uh, we were lucky our management hired our own helicopter because there was no other way to get there. Streets were closed. The, the New York State Thruway was closed. People were just abandoning their cars on the side of the road. And uh, so having the luxury of, of flying in on our own helicopter right behind the stage that was uh, our only way we got to do that show, and it was it, it was an, and you know even though I wasn't there and I was not even a year old when it took place, that whole Woodstock thing marked my life because growing up through the seventies and eighties, we always heard about this this moment, this Woodstock. It was the greatest thing ever, and. It, it really did change music moving forward, and it changed sort of the rock and roll thing. Now, you, you did mention uh, Jimi Hendrix. You, of course, shared a booking agent with him. You have had a chance over the years, to, well, back then, I should say, to to jam with him. What was it about Jimmy that made him so unique and special? And we'll talk to him about him before we get into what makes so you so unique and special in your guitar playing. Well, Jimmy was it. To me, he was like, like, Eric Clapton was, I guess, came a little bit after uh, Woodstock, but when I got turned on to Cream. But my bass player in Mountain produced Cream. But Jimmy, I think there was talk, I don't know if I remember correctly, he thought of having Felix produce him. If he would have had Felix produce him, it wouldn't, Jimmy wouldn't have turned out the way he did, man, but just the way he played and he was, he was so electrifying to watch him play and having to play with him. He, he came into a club in New York club was called Longano's. I went to school with the owner's son, Richard Longano and Hendrix came in one night really late. You know, sitting around, it was a music club, but all of a sudden Jimmy walked in and he, you know, introduced him. This first time I think I met him, and he said to me, "You want to jam?" <laughs> so, I was, Steve Miller was actually playing that night. He was packed up and they left already. But we had a loft on Thirty Sixth Street, in New York City. And on Gallows was on Seventy Second Street. So Jimmy said, "Come on, we'll go in my car." He had a limo outside. We went to our loft. Mountain had a, a rehearsal loss. Went down there. I'm banging on the door, banging on the door. This is like two in the morning. And one of our road managers, Mick Brigden, who manages Joe Satriani now, I said, Mick, open the door. He came down and opened the door. Who's standing there? But Jimmy, with all his feathers and uh, fringe jacket, and it was amazing. We grabbed a couple of Marshall cabinets couple of heads 
he borrowed, I think, Felix's base, one of his bases, and just turned it upside down because Jimmy was a lefty. And uh, we went back and jammed, man. It was like something. I, I have a picture of it. It was a newspaper called East Village Other, and they put a picture of me and Hendrix on the back page, the black and white newspaper, and you know they they, they gave it out for free. And there there it was, me and Hendrix. So I have proof to flavor some. Yeah, and and. Uh, you know that's a that's a that's a known story that known picture um let me talk to you about you on uh, august 12th uh, 2009 uh we lost les paul he he passed and so we're we're sort of in that moment where we're, we're still remembering him you helped popularize the les paul guitar uh, talk to me about that guitar but first the man uh, did you ever have a chance to meet uh les paul yeah i met him once uh at a Van Halen show in New Jersey, I was uh, I was a guest of Bachman Turner Overdrive. They were opening for Van Halen, and Les Paul happened to be there, so I got him to sign my junior or one of them. I, I had a few, but I met his son, Les Paul Junior. That was actually his name, Les Paul's son, who recently died, I think, a couple of years ago. And uh, I played a Les Paul Junior. I didn't play the double pickup, big model that everybody was talking about. But I played that during my whole mountain career, and uh, it was uh, something to remember. You know, even now, when I see a Les Paul Junior for sale in a store, I have to go and look and check it out. I don't have any of the original ones I had anymore, but uh, it was something, man. It was a very inexpensive guitar, but it happened to be the one that I got my hands on. It was luck that that happened. But Felix used to have this guy that worked in Greenwich Village on guitars, and the guitar I was playing at our mountain rehearsals was terrible. It wouldn't stay in tune. And Felix said, "Go down to uh, this place. I think it was called Daniel Armstrong. He used to work on amps and guitars. He said, go down there. He has a guitar for me. Felix bought him a guitar that was broken." But it had Eric Clapton's name on the head. It belonged to Eric Clapton. And I went down there, and the guy told me he didn't, he couldn't find it. I don't believe that. I think he took it. So he had to give me something to make up for it. And lo and behold, it was a West Bowl Jr. So I showed it to Felix. That's not the guitar I gave him. And I told him the story. It really, really pissed him off. You know, in other words, where the head stock was. Instead of Gibson, it was inlaid, Eric Clapton. Imagine if I would have ended up with that together, man. Like, it's somewhere. Well, uh, well, you say you don't have a, any of those guitars left. What what happened to them? Did did you just sell them over the years? Did, did you just sort of move I on? Sold, okay. Yeah, I sold a few and I traded a few. And uh, I gave one to Steve Miller, which recently there was an exhibition. Ex, 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 uh, at the Museum of Natural History, I think. They did a thing on uh, Les Paul. They did. Steve Miller. And Steve Miller, you know, let them uh, use my guitar in the article. And they had pictures of it. The thing is, Steve had it painted. And uh, they talked about it in the New York Times, about that he had the guitar. He said that I had given it to him. We played 
together at American University in Washington, D.C. And I gave him the guitar. I don't know why I gave him the guitar. It was, uh, but he still had it. It was in the interview. There was a picture of him standing next to it. And whoever painted it did a nice job. really looked uh, far out the way they detailed the guitar. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned Felix Papillardi uh, a couple of times. Um, what what did Felix mean to you in terms of uh, personally and in terms also of career? Because he he really was the guy that, well, no, you're going to tell me if that's the case, but, but he sort of got you moving from the vagrants over to, to Mountain to form this new entity, if I've, if that's correct. But what did Felix mean to you? Well, let's, let me set this straight. I had this group locally called Vagrants with my brother and three other guys. And all of a sudden, we went in the studio. Felix was going to produce us. We didn't have any songs. And I was excited here. I'm going to work with Cream's producer. And he said, listen, I don't have the time to write songs. He was going over to England to produce Jack Bruce's solo album, Songs for a Taylor. And... It says, you have time, and you put a group together. Let me listen to it, and I'll see, uh, you know, what's there. So I started, as soon as he left, you know, the vagrants broke up, and then now I start this group, and we're looking for a name. He, I, I think one of us came up with the name Mountain, and Felix was already in England, and I was so excited that I wrote a song, or we wrote a song. I called him on the phone. It was at Jack Bruce's house at the time. And I played the song over the phone. I forgot even what song it was. And when he came back, he started working with me in the studio. And we did my first album, Leslie West Mountain. The name of the album is Leslie West. The group was Mountain. So that, that got the whole thing rolling. And uh, I guess a lot of it is why you're asking me questions right now. By the way, yeah, are you friends with uh, my bass player Rev Jones? I am indeed. I've known Rev for for many years. He's he is what a great guy, man! What a great guy. He really is, and uh, I actually got to meet him when he was uh, well, well on the George Thorogood tours because I, I know Adam Conti and, and George, and, and and I met Rev, and and we've been friends ever since. He's just an incredibly nice guy. He has, in fact. Believe it or not, I have a CD, Rev Jones Backwash, sitting right in, you can hear, I have it right in front of me, actually. It's right, it's uh, at the at arm's length at all times. So, no, he's he's a good guy, and, and he's in your band as well. Um, I want to ask you this, just one more thing with, with Felix. Uh, you know, you were rated by Rolling Stone magazine as one of the hundred greatest guitarists, which is 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 certainly nice but but you once said that Felix had given you some of the best advice possible that you should be able to sing a solo and you want to make sure that people are able to remember solos um talk to me about that advice cuz last night I was talking to Alan Niven who uh, once managed Guns N' Roses and he said you know what I gave that advice to Slash and to Mark Kendall of Great White that you have to be able to sing a solo Talk to me about about that and the importance of having to do that and not just sort of, you know, playing a hundred notes in a minute and, and sounding like a bumblebee. Talk to me about the importance of a tasteful solo. Well, it was great advice, and I still 
use it today. I mean, when you come to a solo, I'm sure you've heard albums and certain songs, and then all of a sudden you hear this gobbledygook crap of what does that have to do with the song? You know, that's the way I looked at it. And so, being for Imaginary Western, one of Mountain's big songs, solo, there's always two of them, one in the middle and one at the end. And uh, I know guys that can sing me that song without even having a guitar in their hand. And I become friendly with Slash, too. And he certainly plays that way. And uh, it was a great, you know, he taught me a lot of things what not to do, Felix, but more when it came to that. Play the solo and see if you can sing it back. Because I used to think of it like a song within the song. And sure enough, it, uh, it helped put my name in there. It really did. And so so when you hear a guitar, and I'm not going to name names because I don't want to badmouth them, but when you hear a guitar... I, I can says, tell you what number. I can tell you what number. I was number 56, and Slash was number 55. And I called Slash up, I said, Slash, you know, Rolling Stone has this list of top guitarists. You came in number 55, and I was number 56. <laughs> and Slash said to me, I'm lucky I'm in the list at all. That's, he's got no ego slash, man. He's just a great guy. And uh, luckily, that's where it was two years in a row, came up the same numbers. I could put us up a little further towards the top, but that's another story. Well, listen, uh, at least you're on the list. I, I recently interviewed Ted Nugent, and he's like, I don't understand why I'm not in the hundreds greatest guitarist. And... I have to say, I, I sort of agree. Get politics aside, he, he does shred. He, he is a good player. But uh, uh, yeah, and, and I'm looking at the list right now, and Dwayne Eddy came ahead just of both of you and and, uh, and Slash. But um, and speaking of great guitars, let me move over because I'm sort of – the problem with interviewing somebody like you is that there's so much to cover in such a limited time. Um, the Leslie West yeah, Band. I don't have, yeah, I just want to tell you that I only have a few more minutes, but – I know. You have to be, go ahead, I'll let you ask me really important stuff. Yeah, well, I just want to talk to you about this Leslie West Band album from, from 76. You did it with Mick Jones, of course, uh, famous from Foreigner. Um, talk to me about that. Was that just sort of a, a one-off kind of thing? You know, How did you approach that project? And talk to me about working with Mick Jones. Here's a guy who has had a incredibly successful career. He's also produced Van Halen. He's also produced other bands. And for some reason, I don't think he gets his due. Um, Wait a second. What group the Les- did Mick Jones produce of Van Halen? 5150. That was his, he, he produced that? Yep, in uh, 85. Wow. Yeah, and he also wow. did some Billy Joel stuff. So, no, yeah, uh, I know he did... Uh, he did a Billy Joel. Uh, I know the name of the song. It's on the tip of my tongue. Uh, Stormfront. I think that. Sorry, say it again. He did. He did uh, Billy Joel Stormfront in in eighty nine, and he did yeah. uh, fifty one fifty in uh, eighty six. But uh, yeah, there's, a, there's a song in there. I'm trying to remember that stuck out with Billy Joel that Mick uh, produced. Uh, well, the big song from that album was We Didn't Start the Fire. That's the song. Yeah. Yeah. And also, Mick was in a group called Spooky Tooth in oh, yeah. England. 
before he even, you know, came over here. And I was auditioning the guitar players. I wanted to have two guitar players in Leslie West Band, like the Stones, Mick Taylor and Keith Richards. And Mick showed up. And I listened to him play, and I said, wow. And we hit it off. And then funny thing is that time went on, I, I fired Mick. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I heard first song of a group called Foreigner. And I said, well, wait, oh, damn. And then Nick became like great producer for Foreigner's albums. And, uh, and I, I was just shocked that all of a sudden there was Nick. And uh, I saw him well, a couple of years ago. There was a VH1 classic TV had a, uh, a show that I was, the, I was the announcer for, a classic rock show on TV. MTV's classic rock and Nick was a guest and we were talking about old times and Nick showed me the guitar pick. He says, I use the same pick as you used to use. And I happen to use a very weird pick, a very thin Fender pick. It had my name on it, but it was really a Fender pick and Nick had it. And uh, was, I was surprised that that was the pick that he chose. And, we had a good time that night reminiscing, and uh, great guy, Nick. He really is, and uh, I, I know we're we're, we're going to run out of time. So uh, the last album was a sound check in 2015. Uh, how right. impor- how important for you is it to to still record and still make new music? Is there sort of an artiste inside of you that says we need to do this, or have we gotten to the point where it's like, eh, you know what? There's no money in records. Forget it. I'll just go play the hits and everybody will be happy. No, I never <laughs> I never thought that. But my manager, Bob Ring, had he called me up and said I had this record deal off the field. Are you interested in doing it? And I did three albums for the company and Soundcheck I thought was the best one of the three. And um I still love going to the studio and recording, you know, you had can take your time. You don't have to rush. Well, we need this song done by today's. And uh, I never worked like that, so I didn't have to work like that. And uh, that was the last thing I uh, recorded. I was sort of thinking about doing something else, but I wanted to do something off the beaten path, you know, not the same way, not the same song. So who knows what will happen, but I still love playing and... Uh, <laughs> my wife wrote a couple of really great lyrics for a couple of songs we did. And um, so I never wanted to work with her because with Bounds, Felix's wife killed him and uh, she shot him to death. And I, they were working together. And I used to think when I first started, wow, what a great idea. Live together, sleep together, eat together. And they write songs together, and boy, did that turn out wrong. But it worked out great with me and Jenny, and uh, yeah, I'm grateful for that. It is. And your manager, I believe, also manages Zach Wilde, or did it for a time, right? Yeah, he, he did. Okay, he did. And, he did. And, and since we're getting to half an hour, I'll end with this. Um, how is your health these days? We we all know the story. We we've read the story, and my dad also has diabetes. How 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 are you? You mean 
missing a leg? How am I? Or well, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to 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 bring it up respectfully. You, you but, can't beat around the bush. You can't there, be, baby. I'm trying. Yeah, I know. So sorry. I'm I'm trying to be delicate. But but how how was you know you know, how how was that situation and losing the leg and how are you now? Have have you adapted? Are are you comfortable? Is is your health still in danger where you, where something else might happen? And sorry for being so. You're forward. in danger too, man. We're I know. all in danger of something happening. Of course. But I'm okay now. And let's leave it at that. No, great. my leg didn't grow back, and I never got used to the uh, press leg. My balance was never good enough. So, but I still play, and uh, I have an incredible vehicle, a chair that gets me around. And uh, if you look up on the web. MV1. It's a vehicle that Rolls Royce and Bentley made and distributed. And it's an incredible vehicle. It has an automatic ramp that comes out in the middle. It sort of looks like a big Range Rover and an English taxi cab. But it works for me. And uh, thank God for that. Yeah, in fact, I'm I'm looking at it now. I I just wanted to say uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you, man. You know, I could talk to you probably today's but so hard to do yeah, thank you leslie uh an absolute pleasure and i know fans want to hear the entire career but you just can't do that in 30 minutes so uh, as we say in montreal merci beaucoup thank you so much thank you man cheers you're listening to rock talk with mitch lafon rock talk